0: We are going to take a break—a two-week break—from our regular series that we are um, studying the role of men and women in the church. Uh, today, we're going to consider something I'm going to tell us in a second. What it is, and then next week, we're going to actually consider, consider look, talk a little bit uh, about the biblical foundation of the—not um, the biblical foundation, but the foundation in on which the United States was founded and uh, how Christianity kind of ran, ran through all of this as we um, you know, c- celebrate the Lord's Day and, secondarily, the Independence Day, uh, which seems like these days are supposed to be embarrassed of it, and we shouldn't necessarily be embarrassed of it. Um, the Lord is good to us. But today, you know that June... Uh, I already have water, thank you. I have water over here, Thanks. Yeah, can I have an amen, please? No. <laughs> uh, June has been inf- infamously tagged as what? Pride month. Right? So I wanted to t- us to take a, a moment and um, consider that. It is supposed to, so June is supposed to be a time uh, when we celebrate all that the LGBTQ stands for. And Um, Obviously, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ can't stand for the things that these letters uh, signify. Yet, we must interact with the people who stand behind these letters. We live in a world where uh, not only people who claim these letters live, but also people who have uh, caved into the false ideology that is behind these letters. So there's more people who caved under the ideology than there are people who actually claim to be LBGTQ+. We're talking about less than 5% of the American population. So it's not as prevalent as perhaps all the TV shows would make you think it is, and so on. But though we can't celebrate it, we do have to interact with people who stand behind these letters. And I want to examine... How we do that by lo- looking at one single issue that stands behind most of the letters. If you look at the L, the G, the B, and the Q, the connecting issue there is homosexuality. And the, well, how we think about homosexuality will also help us think about all the other letters that they may add to the end. that's why now it's a plus, because uh, it, it would get too long to put on any post or anything like that. With all the letters that are being added, and these scriptures have a lot to say about this issue, and the gospel shines rays of light upon this issue. Now who God is and what Christ did on the cross have huge implications for who we are personally and what we desire sexually now the gospel, the gospel 's light penetrates. All of human sexuality and not just homosexuality. And I want us to take a look at this issue this morning, and I think that there are essentially six questions that we need to answer when we think about homosexuality and the LGBTQ plus movement as a whole. First, can it be justified from the Bible? Secondly, is same-sex attraction sinful? Thirdly, how is a Christian church to relate to another Christian church that approves homosexuality? Fourthly, what are the God-given boundaries for a physical relationship? Fifthly, how should I relate to a homosexual? And lastly, is there a solution? And in good Presbyterian fashion in the way that, you know, from a person who really enjoys the Puritans, I will answer these six questions with ten answers uh, as we go on uh, uh, this morning. And the first one is, is, can it be justified from the Bible? And the answer is that homosexuality is sin. And the way you cut it, it is sin. Why? Well, because the Bible says so. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. It says, uh, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So that's the rebellion of the natural man. This is the rebellion against the... The revelation of God in creation, what's called natural revelation, this is what's going, there's an exchange. They exchange the glory of God for the created realm. The problem is the created realm doesn't work without the creator being recognized. Then Paul continues, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Notice that, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, because they exchanged the truth for a lie, they live in a lie, God gave, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what's shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due." God is here, Paul is explaining what it meant to exchange the truth for a lie. They're living a lie. They're not living what God instituted. And he clearly describes homosexuality here. So why is, uh, can it be justified from the Bible? The answer is no. Hold on to that, um, Adam. We'll come back to just a sec. It's the only Romans in the Bible. (laughs) It's Romans 1, uh, verses 22 through 27. (laughs) And even more, even stronger than the, if this is a strong, I think there's even a stronger argument, and it's the biblical theology of marriage. If you look at what Jesus says concerning marriage in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, he says, so this is an argument of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore, that God has joined together, let no man separate. This is God's description of marriage that is between a man and a woman. Notice there's only two genders created, male and female, and... That male was called to join that female and become one. So anything but a lifelong union between a man and a woman is a perversion of what God created. And this includes homosexuality, which is the union between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. It defies the union, the only sanctified union that God gave us in the Bible. Questions? All right. Now, having said that, homosexuality is not the ultimate sin. We sometimes tend to think that that's the, the unpardonable sin, that somehow there's no hope there. Yet, we forget that Romans, also in the same passage, so I, I flash on the screen, Romans 1, 22 through 27. And as we keep on reading, it lists other sins that we are very comfortable with. And yet we don't call them ultimate sins, or we don't think of them as ultimate sins as we think of homosexuality. So continuing, Romans 1, verse 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God. So as you read Romans 1, there's this uh, entrenchment into sin. Uh, The more they rebel against God, the more they go down into, uh, if if we were to use Dante's, different levels of hell, uh, worse kinds of sin. And so in verse 28 it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. That means they are gossipers. It's interesting that in, in the, the rings of sin, as you go further and further down into darkness in the book of Romans, gossip is even further down than homosexuality. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, incorrigible children is in a lower rank uh, than homosexuality. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So you see that there are other really bad sins. And I list these not for you to think of homosexuality as a lesser sin, but to think that all sins is against the Holy God and they are bad. The problem is that we have a tendency to think that other people's sins are really bad and our sins are not so bad. That other people's struggles are really sinful, but my struggles are not very very. Um, Bad. This is, I think, a tendency of human nature to excuse self and to condemn others. Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, wrote a great book on this very subject called Respectable Sins, in which he deals with these sins that we have become um, accepting of in our midst as being, you know, they're not so bad, so we don't have to worry about them. Any questions before we continue? All right. So another thing to keep in mind is homosexuality can be repented of. We also tend to think that homosexuality is the worst thing ever, and that somehow there's no hope, but that's not what the Bible teaches. First Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11, Paul says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived?" Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. So these are two categories of homosexuality here. Uh, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these people who are identified as that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, the, uh, PCA, the General Assembly of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, is meeting this week, I think. Is that true? One of the debates, one of the things that they are voting on is whether a Christian can identify himself as homosexual. Like, be a Christian. no, No practice. You're not practicing it. You're still affirming marriage, as the Bible says, but you can identify yourself as a Christian homosexual. The problem is that Paul says that none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. If that's one's identity, they're not part of the kingdom of God. Do you you see the difference between being a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction? That's your identity. You're a Christian or saying that I am a homosexual. The identity shifts completely. Your sin identifies you instead of your Savior. And that's the problem. But Paul continues. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. These are wonderful words. Such here is plural in the original language and encompasses the entire... Um, all the categories is listed before, including homosexuality. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were that, you're no longer that. You're no longer a drunkard. So the whole AA idea that you're a drunkard for life is contrary to the scriptures. You may be a Christian who struggles with the substance abuse, but you cannot be a drunkard and a Christian at the same time. For, and such were some of you, but you were washed But well, The same with revilers or covetous, or being a sodomite or a homosexual or a thief or an adulterer or fornicators. All these things were part of who these people were, who we were. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So like any other, with other sins, homosexuality can be repented of. Any questions before we continue? All right. Number four. The struggle with, the same, with same-sex attraction, though the result of sin, may not be sin in and of itself. Okay, how does that strike you? The desire for the same-sex attraction, the struggle with same-sex attraction, though the result of sin, that is, If Adam had not fallen, there would be no same-sex attraction. So it's the result of sin. But the struggle itself may not be sinful in and of itself. Any thoughts on that before I prove that I'm right? Sorry, I shouldn't say that. My wife doesn't like when I say that. Sorry, from now on, I'll just think it. (laughs) I'm going to go to Nick. Right. And temptation is only temptation is if it has some hold on you, right? Uh, nobody can tempt me with kale, right? I mean, man, I was really tempted to eat that kale salad, but I, I resisted it. That's not really what temptation is, right? Temptation has to be something that has some sort of hold. You know, uh, Lois brought banana cream pie for dessert today. There's, Nick is not tempted to have that for dessert because there's no hold on him. Levi. Right. It may be it may struggle we may struggle sinfully, but it's not necessarily sinful. Andrew? I think it's I think is infinitely far, yeah, because agree, this is one who identity his identity is in Christ, not in his sin. If your identity is in your sin, then the the struggle is sinful, because that's where it really starts. Is where is your identity? Yeah, I guess maybe I'm just making a comment for those. Who are- and that you should not embrace any of the actions, and they would probably even say fight against those, but, and this is where the subtle difference is, but it's the difference of the world. Right, but that's my, my point. It's not a subtle difference. It's a major explicit difference in the Bible. People may be so m- mistaken. So, set, so, yeah. It, it, in how it's stated, you could right? No, I think what I'm saying here is diametrically opposed to, the, to what's going on elsewhere. So let me just prove this from the Bible first before we open it, because we're going in the direction that was not what I had planned. Um, so all I'm saying is that though the same-sex desire is a result of the fall, it in of itself may not be sinful. James says, bless the man who endures temptation, right? So he's tempt- enduring temptation. There's a temptation to do something. And again, a temptation has to be something that has a hold of you. Otherwise, it doesn't. Qualify as uh, a temptation. So, bless the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he receive the crown of life. So, these, the, the resisting the struggle, resisting the temptation, is actually a, uh, by God's grace, will result in a blessing from the Lord that he calls a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does the He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, and this is important. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire does what, gives has conceived it, gives birth to sin. So there's a, there's a moment in which the struggle is not sin, and then it becomes sin. You see that? So, just the struggle itself may not be a sinful thing as long as you're um, struggling with it and not just giving yourself to it. All right? Danita, you had your hand up. Right. Yeah so the, uh, this passage is not, uh, not about, it is all about homosexuality but it's not about homosexuality either right it's about any struggle so somebody might be struggle with anger somebody might struggle with uh, the fear of man somebody might struggle but the the struggle itself is not necessarily sinful the temptation to fall into that sin is not the sin itself Yeah five for counting Churches that are, and this is a very strong statement and I think it's completely true Churches that approve and justify homosexuality are churches that have abandoned Christ's reign over them and therefore are not true churches of Jesus Christ anymore. Remember how the Great Commission begins? How does the Great Commission begin? Anybody remember? All authority. Yes, that's, we, try to, we tend to start with a go, right? But start with the all authority as given to whom? To Christ on heaven and earth. So if you can get out of heaven on earth, that is everywhere, then Christ is not king over there. But in heaven and earth, Christ has authority, therefore he gets to tell us what to do. So to go against him in this major foundational issue is to put himself yourself outside of the rule of Christ and no longer being a church of Jesus Christ. And that's important to, to think about because often you say, man, it's difficult. I know I, I can see the Bible teaching this, but all, all these other churches approve of homosexuality. Only my church doesn't. Well, that's not a true church. It would, be, it would be better to call it a synagogue of Satan than a church of Jesus Christ. And that's something that has to, is important to us. Danita. Uh, I don't know. But it is to put yourself outside of the authority of Christ. You're no longer a church that's faithfully following Christ in a very foundational way. Not in secondary or even tertiary issues, but in, in that first order issues that puts you outside of the border of theological Christianity. Right? So it doesn't mean that everybody in that church is in that condition, but that, that particular as an institution is there. Brother, I forgot your name. You had your hand up. Remind your name. Um, Jay. James. I would personally, I'm not sure I mean, Paul Right, so you're talking about First Corinthians 5, but but they were approved in practice, not in theolo- not theologically. Churches that say the Bible teaches that homosexuality is okay is a different way than just being misguided in your practice. So that's, that's a major issue. When you change your statement of faith to include the LGBT movement as a, a viable option for Christians, now you've gone beyond... I think what you can find in any church of the New Testament. And on top of that, Corinth did not have the whole New Testament. We do. We have the entire revelation of Jesus Christ. The standard for us is a little higher than it was for Corinth in the first century because now we have the entire revelation of Jesus Christ and the church has been unfolding that for 2,000 years as the Spirit works in that. So it's a little different. I do not want to... You know, people say, I want to be a New Testament church. I don't. They, they, every one of those churches had all major issues. We want to be a church that's faithful to the entire New Testament, an entire canon of the Scriptures. All right, next one, number six. God has given us loving boundaries, and that's important for us to understand. God created us as sexual beings. That's how God created us. We are sexual beings. We are men and women with distinct bodies that have been made in God's image. And the Bible emphasizes the importance of our bodies. So Paul says in First Corinthians six thirteen. Remember, right after he says in such were some of you, he says food, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both in, in it, but it and them. Now the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And this simple phrase, the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body is a substantial starting point for understanding God's design for us as sexual beings. Our, our bodies have been created not only by God, but also for God. This is a very different starting point than most people have in our culture. Uh, we live in what's called a hedonistic culture. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever feels good right now, whatever brings the most pleasure to, the, to your body, do it right now. What We are driven today by whatever can bring our bodies most pleasure, and what we can eat, touch, watch, do, listen to, or engage in to satisfy the cravings of our bodies is what we should do. That's what should guide us. We are swimming in a cultural ocean that cries out with every wave, Gratify your body, whatever your body wants, you do that. But that's not how God created us. God created us as sexual beings ultimately for his glory and not for our gratification. And glorifying God is actually the way to experience the greatest satisfaction in our bodies. Uh, If you look at the very last part of that verse up there, it says the Lord for the body. The Lord is in, for our body. He is in favor of our body. He wants us to enjoy our bodies and the boundaries He's given us. Not only are our bodies, des- uh, not only are our bodies designed f- for God, but He's devoted to our bodies. God wants us to experience the maximum joy for which he, our bodies built. And as the creator of our bodies, He knows what will bring them the most pleasure. So God didn't tell us, there's male and female, and that's how male and female enjoy each other, because he was a mean God and wanted to limit us. But he, wanted, he did that in order for us to express our humanity and our, uh, being made in the image of God to its fullness. It's not to reduce our enjoyment of life, but to increase our enjoyment of life, that God made things the way that he did. And this takes us back to one of the core truths of the gospel. God loves us and is for us and not against us, right? That's what Romans 8 tells us. And then Romans 8.32 tells us that if he gave us his son, which was the most precious things to him, what is it that he's going to keep from us? Nothing. So he's not keeping anything good from us. What he revealed to us as our sexuality as male and female is the best thing for us. So that's why God, in his love, gives us boundaries for our bodies. He loves us and knows what's best for us. He desires to protect us from harm and provide us with something greater than we can see. And I think these simple truths help us to see more clearly what we are doing when we ignore God's good instructions regarding our bodies. It is out of love for us, that God did and does things the way that he has done. And God designed a man's and a woman's body to join together as one flesh in marriage. And that's the purpose for our sexuality. Any questions about the boundaries that God has given us to express our sexuality? All right, number seven. Are people born homosexuals? Are people born homosexuals? Born sinners. So the answer is yes and no. Right? I think uh, we have to. Uh, uh, it's it's foolish of us to say just simply no. Um, we are all born sinners, right? We're sinners from actually from the moment of conception. We are we are sinners not after we leave the womb, but in the womb, we are. Sinners, uh, a while ago, our family listened to some uh, lessons on uh, child rearing by John MacArthur. And it was so difficult. I mean, the practical part was really good, but it was so difficult for him to get there because his theology didn't back up what he was saying as far as God's relationship to the children. And, you know, and he ended up saying that if the child dies within a certain age, then uh, it's, it's, it's innocent, so it goes to heaven, and, and, but they are sinful at the same time. and So his theology, didn't, the practice was great, but the theology didn't help him get there. Well, we believe that we are all conceived, from the moment of conception, we are sinful and we are all born capable of homosexuality. I've said before what Robert Murray McShane, told one of his parishioners, he said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And one time I said that somebody came talk to me afterwards. Oh, I don't think that's true. I don't think I will ever be able to commit mass murder. That's what the person said. And I said, Have you ever been mad, angry with more than one person? Well, that's the seed of mass murder right there, right? So I think it's a true statement that the seed of we don't something doesn't have to happen to us for us to become more sinful. It's just how we were conceived there." More specifically, it is possible, and I think even likely, for somebody to come into the world with a tendency to struggle with a particular sin. You now, remember, we are made up by nurture and by nature, and there is I think, a thing of possibility and likely that we come into the world with this uh, tendency to struggle with a particular sin. Somebody may naturally struggle with responding in anger. Somebody may may have a perennial struggle with the inordinate sexual desires, same sex or opposite sex somebody may naturally struggle with the desire to get drunk or somebody may struggle with, with laziness or the fear of man so that can be we can have the tendency to struggle with certain things even from birth on and again remember that the struggle itself is not sin <clears throat> but just because there is a struggle that may be with us even from birth it does not follow that one must act according to the tendency. Does it make sense to you? That just because we may have a tendency towards something, it doesn't mean that we must act according to that tendency. That's the argument of the LGBTQ plus movement, is that you're born that way, you are, we have that tendency, therefore you must act that out. That's the only solution is to act that out. Do you see any flaw with that argument? Anybody see a flaw with that argument? What would, that flaw, what would the flaw be? Okay, just give in. What? Yeah, Darren. That's the same argument. Right, exactly. You give But uh, change the argument. Change the, oh, I was born that way. I was born homosexual. Change, it was, I was born with something else. I was born with a desire to kill you. Well, 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 follow that. The, no, the doctor is accepted in culture. So I'm just saying uh, if I say, you know what, I was born with a desire to kill you. So, following the logic, in order to be fulfilled, I must live out that desire. So, let me kill you. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. You can't do that. But that is the same sort of logic. And you might say, oh, that's an absurd. Well, that's a, that's a valid way to prove the irrationality of an argument by carrying it to the absurd, Uh, but if you're back five years, if you just go back to 2015, so that's not five years, that's six years, that's when Obergefell became the law of the land, same-sex marriage. If you go back six years, the way people are talking today would sound absolutely absurd to us six years ago. So don't think that this argument of, oh, I, I was born to kill you is that far out there. But we, 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 So we live in a culture that assumes that if we were born with a desire, then it's essential to your nature to carry that desire out. The problem is that things don't work out that way, right? We just saw that. And, and, and if I desire to kill you, I don't have the right to kill you. Even the state and society at large recognizes that that is the case. And it's because of that that homosexuality should never be, or LGBTQ stuff should never be, a civil rights issue. Uh, I'm not going to explain on that, but we can talk about that. That is because it is a tendency of the heart is a sin issue. It should not be ever a civil rights issue. The same with being uh, in the same way that uh, discrimination against how you look should it should be a civil rights issue. So acknowledging that someone may be born with a tendency to sin in this way will help us understand that even if scientists are able to identify a gene that causes a person to tend that way, we don't have to approve of it because tendency doesn't equate necessity to act. And our theology acknowledges that even our DNA is corrupted by sin. That's called total depravity. Even our DNA has been affected by sin. Uh, That's why we have Down syndrome syndrome babies. Uh, The DNA itself was degraded by the fall. And we should expect then, if if a scientist ever identifies that gene, gene said, yep, that is consistent with what the Bible teaches. And we should not be afraid of that. We don't, we don't always have. We don't always choose our temptations. We don't choose what We, all, we don't always choose what we struggle with. Does it make sense? It feels very overwhelming and natural and something that uh, we didn't choose to. But we ch- do choose our reactions to those temptations. Any questions? All right, number eight. Uh, I. I think there are honest homosexuals and dishonest homosexuals. Uh, the, the honest homosexual is the one that says the Bible and the God of the Bible teach that homosexuality is wrong. Therefore, they don't care for the Bible or the God of the Bible. Right? That's the honest homosexual. The dishonest homosexual, the one that tries to, sh- to make the Bible teach that homosexuality is, is an acceptable behavior before God. The Bible teaches that's not the case. But they bring some arguments. They say, well, you, you, you are misinterpreting uh, what the Bible says concerning homosexuality. For example, they say, uh, you know, you're all familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They say that God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't because they were homosexuals, but because they were inhospitable. That fire and brimstone came upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed them, not because they tr- tried to rape the angels that came to town, but because they were just not good hosts. They were inhospitable to them. The old man had to bring him into his house, or Lot had to bring him into his house, and you know, they were just banging on the door. They were not polite people. That's why God joined, uh, destroy them. The problem with that is what the Bible says about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Jude, verse 7 says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to, to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So why is it, according to Jude, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed as an example of eternal punishment? Because of their sexual immorality, not because of their being inhospitable. Are we with me in that answer to that? Well, they also say that the Bible only condemns homosexual activity that is in the context of idolatry. You know, say, you know, what God is forbidding is for you to be a homosexual in, the, in, in a false god's temple where you're going to do, practice homosexuality in order to worship a false god. If you're a faithful follower of the true God, then it's okay to be a homosexual. If you're doing it for his glory, then it's okay to be a homosexual, Right? The problem with it is the passage we already saw, 1 Corinthians 6, where homosexuality and idolatry are brought in different categories. And both, Paul says, such were some of you. You don't continue in, in that. And then, really, the one that is most often used, that they say what the Bible forbids is, is promiscuous homosexuality. That if you are in a committed, faithful, homosexual relationship, then you are glorifying God. You can glorify God in that. The problem is, there's one major problem with that argument. What is it? The theology of marriage. How God describes marriage. How God describes what sanctify a sexual union between two humans. That would be contrary to this idea that uh, the Bible is only condemning um, prosmi- pro pro unfaithful homosexual uh, uh, behavior questions so it is really if, you're, if you have a high regard for the authority of the scriptures, if you have a high regard for the words that are in the Bible, uh, it's very difficult to justify homosexuality uh, you know, uh, and all the the letters in the LGBTq plus slogan now what's the solution we're in Sunday school so a Sunday school answer works Jesus. Jesus is the solution yes the gospel is the solution isn't that what Paul says it was Christ who changed them such were some of you it was through the gospel through Christ that they were cleansed just like we have been cleansed uh, and it is then bringing the gospel to bear that it is the most liberating thing to do. Um, we don't have we have two minutes, three minutes. How do we relate to people who claim homosexuality as an identity? How do we relate to them? Well, Al Mohler has some good stuff written it, and he suggests that. In figuring out how we're to relate to homosexuals, we should actually focus on what kind of people we must be first. And then relate to them according to that. And he offers six principles in doing that. He he says that if we're going to relate to homosexuals for the glory of God, that we must be people who cannot talk about anything of significance without acknowledging our absolute dependence upon the, the revelation of God, the Bible. The Bible can't be only what guides us in talking about homosexuality, but it has to be what guides us in all of life. And if that's what it is, if, if it's true of the whole, it's going to be true of the parts. And Moeller says that's how we have to begin. The Bible must govern everything in our lives. And if it does, then when we speak to people about any issue, it's going to, the Bible comes, comes out. He also says that we must be convinced that sex and all that lead to sex can only be talked about in the context of marriage. If we're okay with heterosexual fornication, we have not not elected to stand in talking about homosexuality. Okay? Three, we must be people who will not start a conversation about homosexuality by talking about homosexuality. Rather, we will talk about the glory of God. A homosexual needs to repent of homosexuality, but he he needs to repent of being a sinner. And it's better to start with the glory of God. Four, we must be people who understand the deadly deception of sexual sin. Uh, remember Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says that we are, spiritual, you who are spiritual restore our brother who is caught in transgression, but we do that understanding that we might fall too. 1 Corinthians 10:12 says, take heed lest you fall. So we, we need to be aware of that. 5, we must be people with a theology that explains Christ's victory over sin. We are, so again, a matter of identity. Christ has won it. He has transformed us. We're, we're, we're saints who sins. We're saints who sin. We are, we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. In six, he says, "We must be people who love homosexuals more than homosexuals love their homosexuality. Right? And that's important. So we're not speaking despairingly. We're not using names. We're not talking behind their backs. We love them more than they love their sins. And then I would like to add two to Mollers. One is we, we must be people whose marriages are God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, that homosexual desire that type of union. And I think the church is losing this battle largely because our marriages stink. And it's not something that really is attractive to the world. And lastly, we must be people who know the cross and its power. Jesus Christ must be working in us. We must be just enamored and consumed with Him and the cross and the resurrection. That's the kind of people that we need to be in order to relate to homosexuals in a way that blesses them and glorifies God. Any comments before we close? All right, so when we pray, it would be great if we could grab a chair. There's some chairs still there. The chairs in the Sunday school rooms. Grab a hymnal uh, uh, and take it outside and uh, start setting up. There's a pattern set up there. We just try to follow, find shade, and go there. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us, and that you are uh, clearly uh, clear in the way that you speak to us uh, as your Spirit opens our eyes. Enable us to follow you faithfully in every area of life. For asking Jesus' name, Amen.